0: Hello and welcome to the Nile and Nine podcast. It is Nile and Andrea here. This week we're going to be talking about something dear to Andrea Cleary's heart, aren't we?
1: We are, Nile. Hello, everyone. Someone very, very dear to my heart. Yes, we're going to be talking about Joni Mitchell. Um just basically off the back of your excellent Steely Dan podcast and the Passion and enthusiasm that you brought to teaching me all about Steely Dan. Um, it was agreed between us that maybe I know Joni Mitchell that bit more than you do, very much um, so, yeah. But you are, you are ready and willing to. I'm a willing uh, learn. pupil.
0: I'm a willing pupil, and yeah. you are the teacher. And uh, many people listening as well are going to be the the willing pupils of uh, of school of Andrea.
1: Equally, there's probably going to be a lot of people listening who like Joni Mitchell a lot more than me, and know a lot more about her. Um, this isn't about you guys, and if I get something wrong, no, I didn't. So, <laughs> just, yeah. just to say that up front. Um, yeah, I also have a bit of, kind of, I was saying to now before we start recording, I have a bit, kind of, some COVID brain fog. So, you know, if I miss out on something, you know, be gentle. Um, it's a real thing. This is going to be ve- very much a... Um, just a, uh, an overview of why I love her. Um, That's all I want to hear. A little bit about her albums, a little bit about her career. Listen, um, if I
0: wanted if I wanted the discography, I can just go on Wikipedia. You know what I mean? I want the heart.
1: Exactly. The woman has 19 albums. I will not be talking about all of them. <laughs> you know, like it's the, it, it is a lot. But yeah, Joni Mitchell, I'm very excited to kind of chat to you about this because I think actually she is an artist who I could see you Getting into and loving, yeah. Um, well, that's why
0: I wanted to do it because she's one of the artists that I'm obviously aware of um over the and like my entire life, but never enough that I've gone really deep into Johnny mm-hmm. Mitchell, and um, mm-hmm. never enough that I've really given pr- the albums a proper listen. Other than it maybe been on maybe one Sunday or some chill afternoon in the house. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. So
1: it can be quite intimidating to try and get into Joni Mitchell as well because like I said 19 albums incredibly prolific um songwriter has recorded in every decade up until the 2000s um so it can be really hard to know where to start but the the great thing about Joni Mitchell is that she was great immediately so if you do start from the beginning you're you, there's no kind of period that you have to Wait for or skip forward to a lot of people will be familiar with blue um the album blue, but maybe not as much beyond that, but don't worry, I'm here to tell you all about it, so I'll give you a bit of background about um about our Joni because her personal life is quite important to her songwriting um I'll be mentioning kind of husbands and relationships in this. I'm not doing that just because um. She's dated and married uh, famous men, and we tend to do that with women But because it's important to her work. So I just want to flag that now. But Joni was born Roberta Joan Anderson in Alberta, Canada. Uh, Her mom was a teacher. Her dad was a Canadian Air Force lieutenant. So she spent a good bit of time kind of moving around, um, not really settling in, in one place, even as a child. She loved to dance. She loved to create visual art, which she would continue doing uh, throughout her career. Um, She loved jazz and was just generally a very kind of artistic child. Um, She's talked about kind of sitting at her kitchen window and looking out and seeing people passing by and just getting this longing to do what they were doing and just this sense of like wanting to engage in some movement and finding out what was going on in the in the in post-war North America and she she eventually did then set off for art college and while she was there she started singing in a little coffee house called the depression which is a funny name for a a coffee house in Calgary and at this time she was very much inspired by artists like Joan Baez and Judy Collins and has called herself a a competent mimic of those artists so she wasn't playing or singing in her own style yet she was she was very much singing their songs and the idea of being her own recording artist wasn't really on her mind at that time singing was just something she did as a hobby um, while she was, you know, studying to be an artist, to be a painter. So while she was in college, she became pregnant. Um, she said actually it, she became pregnant. Um, it was her first time sleeping with someone and she became pregnant, um, which is just an incredibly cruel thing to have happened to anybody. Um, and. She talks about the shame of having to hide it from her family, um, and the fear as well of being sent away somewhere. Um, and you know, this is Canada, Canada in the early sixties. But you know, a, a lot of us here here in Ireland can kind of um, we have our own history with those sorts of fears and and that that kind of shame. And it's something that will come up in her work later on in life. Um, but she she gave birth to a daughter. Um, who she then had to give up to a foster home um, because she just couldn't afford to look after a child. Um, and she went then and started to look for work. We'll play one of her songs. This is a song called "Little Green, and she wrote this about that experience and about that um, about that time in her life.
2: Color green and the winters cannot fade her Color green for the children who've made her little green Things warmer there So you write him a letter and say Her eyes are blue, he sends you a poem And she's lost to you Little green, he's a nonconformer Just a little green Like the color when the spring is born There'll be crocuses to bring to school tomorrow. So Andrea, was this
0: known at the time that she put up to her daughter for adoption? Was this something that was, you know, on the cards or or, or well-known?
1: Um, it would have been known in her social circle. So she didn't have, um, you know, a, a recording career at this time. Um, so this, the, this song appears in the album Blue much, much later in, in her career, but it was written um, about, about that time in her life. But she there wasn't there wasn't really anyone to know about it at this stage you know she was still playing very very small gigs um but she did meet a gentleman and uh, musician called Chuck Mitchell and kind of went with him to the states to play some gigs and try and make some money um and she told him about about the um about the issue with her daughter that her daughter was in foster care and he said he suggested as a, as a solution that he could marry her. And they did. They got married. And she says that they did it for all the wrong reasons. Um, she was young. She was only 21 at this stage. They were completely broke. She's talked in an interview that I, that I watched about the feeling of walking up the aisle and already the cogs turning, figuring out how she's going to get out of this situation, you know, how she's going to, how as a 21 year old woman, she's walking up an aisle towards a a loveless marriage. And, and I guess she felt very trapped. Um, Chuck, who was a musician as well, he insisted that the pair of them become a duo and start performing music together. But he ended up kind of benefiting a lot more from that um, musical relationship than uh, financially um, than she ever did. He very much held the purse strings. He controlled the bookings. He controlled what happened with the money. He was a husband in the 60s, basically. Um, And he also did much better out of that musical arrangement than he ever did on his own as well. But it was around this time that she kind of began writing her own music. Um, and she was still performing with him and, and still performing the covers, but she was starting to get a sense, at least privately of who she wanted to be as a musician, as an artist, and as, as a lyricist as well. One of the first songs that she wrote at this time was a little known number called Both Sides Now, um, which we can, (laughs) we can take a listen to that, um to the earlier version of uh, of Both Sides Now, because there's two.
2: Rows and flows of angel hair, and ice cream castles in the air, and feather canyons everywhere. I've looked at clouds that weep, but now they only block the sun, they rain and snow on all-
0: What a beautiful song, still, every time you hear it.
1: Every single time I hear it, it floors me. It's one of my two favourites of uh, of hers. And so I guess this song is really, this is from her her album uh, Clouds, which, again, we'll talk about later. We're not doing this chronologically, um, but that's fine. Um, But I think what, you know, that being an early song in Joni's career um, in in e- even her own kind of personal songwriting is very indicative of the way she thinks about kind of stories and the world really because you know she's she's 21 she's been through quite a lot of trauma now at this stage you know have, having to give up her daughter and entering into this marriage and trying to find her way as an artist and the way that she expresses that is to look around her you know at you know clouds life love and she she sings in those lyrics about having kind of come through something and looking at it from a different perspective and that's something that will really you know remain in 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 her work um as, as she moves through the decades is just this sense of i guess i guess perspective and memory as being something that is just as present as whatever might be going on in in the world around you in the kind of more tangible world she works in a very intangible space you know without ever going to I guess you know without ever going really spiritual about it you know it's a kind of an, an artistic spirituality it's like it's like lo- the feeling you get when you look at a painting rather than... Well, that's the best definition of art, isn't it? You know, you know
0: that kind of idea. Yeah. It's it's kind of, that's what we seek to define when we talk about music in a lot of ways. But a lot of those mm. aspects and qualities of things that make things, um, you know, more resonate more than other things are very hard mm. to define. And and that's what we as, as music writers and critics are often seeking, just a way to explain the unexplainable. You know what I mean? So
1: yeah absolutely and i think she she does that so well in that in that song in, in both sides now like you even though she's she's singing about her own specific experience there's i don't think there's a person in the world that would listen to those lyrics and not find something that is relatable in in, in their own life um everybody's been through a certain amount of trauma everybody has a certain amount of perspective uh, on their own life whether you're 21 or 81 you know it and it just it does change and we'll talk, we'll talk about the 2000 version of that, of that song later on and how that has kind of transformed within, within her, um, within her career and her perspective as well. But, you know, she, she'd already kind of been through so much. She said about her kind of early career, that bad fortune changed the course of my destiny and that she wouldn't change anything about, you know, that, that first marriage because it's what, made her a songwriter you know um but the marriage dissolved um basically when she said when the um musical duo dissolved so too did the marriage and um they went their separate ways she moved to new york she got a manager and she gigged and gigged and gigged and gigged um and kind of quickly became known in the kind of you know like the The burgeoning countercultural folk scene um, for her very unique guitar style, her also very unique vocal style, and for her lyrics as well. Um, She had a song around this time called Ida King, um, which is a a wonderful example of of something I'll explain after we after we hear it.
2: Taken to sing, I'm crazy and blind. He lives in another time. Ladies in gingham still blush while he sings them of woes and wine. But I, in my leather and lace, I can never. Be
1: So there's a real kind of sense of acceptance in that song. Some of the lyrics later on are, I had a king in a salt rusted carriage who carried me off to his country for marriage too soon. Beware the power of moons. And there's this sense that um, destiny is playing a big part in the, in the course of her life, but also storytelling um, was about to become very, very important to her. She was a massive, massive fan of, of Dylan who was coming up in the same scene as, as, as she was, and she said of him, she loved how he told stories. And she said he would speak as if to one person in a song. So Dylan used a lot of like, you do this, and mm-hmm. I I I don't like when you do this, or he did you know, it, it's all it's very, very personal um and direct lyrics. And she began to kind of incorporate that into into her own work. And I think you can hear it really well in, in in I Had a King, where she's not quite, you know, speaking directly to the audience, but she's starting to look at characters and to put herself within stories that are still a little bit opaque, I suppose, you know, with those themes that kind of hit home with anybody, no matter who they were. But I think what's so interesting when you think about Joni and... Dylan is how Joni's music, how she kind of took that idea of speaking directly to somebody, but really put her own spin on it in terms of what her music would end up sounding like. You know, she was a lot more concerned with what was going on with the melody and harmonically than Dylan was. Dylan had a, Dylan used music as like a vehicle to get his message across. Whereas with Joni, the music was as much part of the message as as the as the lyrics were um so she never wanted to kind of sacrifice melody and managed to still get those kind of those run-on lines those um those really important parts of the story that she wanted to that she wanted to get across and chords too i mean we can't talk about Joni Mitchell without talking about like how, how she tunes her guitar and you know she's got like if if you try to learn a Joni Mitchell if anyone out there has ever tried to learn a Joni Mitchell song you'll know how frustrating it can be because she just has like I think she's got like over fifty different tunings that she uses she doesn't she she, she won't be like oh I'll 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 tune this I'll I'll write this song in like drop D or whatever she just she just started to play with like loosening and tightening the strings and seeing where she ended up, seeing what chords she ended up with trying to find what, what the chord in her head um, ha- how to transfer that, transpose that onto the guitar. So there was no real sense of like, I'm going to learn the rules of the guitar here. It was just, I'm going to intuitively, you know, get the best sound out of, out of the guitar that, that, uh, that I can. And she called these kind of these chords that she would stumble upon during this process uh, chords of inquiry. Um, And she felt that because to her chords were depictions of emotions, um, these kind of these chords of inquiry, these very, you know, unresolved sounds um, would would reflect the kind of lack of resolution within the story or the song or whatever it is that she's trying to do. She's trying to transpose a feeling onto, onto the neck of the guitar. And, you know, if you, if you're a guitarist and you set out to do that, you know, people would pray and like you put an album out and that was the concept of the album. People would praise you and be like, wow, what a, what an innovative thing. But for Joni, that was just her natural way of learning her way around the guitar. She was like, well, why do I have to do like a a one, five, six, four chord progression or, or, or whatever it might be. She was just like, no, I'll just make my guitar sound weird and strange and slightly, slightly uncomfortable at times because that's what life is like. Um, I think the song Chelsea morning is a really nice example of that kind of not discordant, but, um, yeah, no, she put it best herself when she called them chords of inquiry. They, they're, it, they're, it's curious sounding music. Woke
2: up, it was a Chelsea morning, and the first thing that I heard was a song outside my window, and the traffic wrote the words. It came a ringing up like Christmas bells and rapping up like. Quiet and drums. Oh, won't you stay, we'll put on the day and we'll wear it till the night comes Woke up, it was a Chelsea morning and the first thing that I saw was the sun through yellow curtains and a rainbow on the wall blue, red, green and gold to welcome you and crystal two beats to beckon Oh, won't you stay? We'll put on a day. There's a sunshine every second.
1: So I think you can hear there that the the, the guitar, if it, like if you were to isolate her vocal track, those aren't necessarily the chords that you would put underneath. Um there's definitely something strange about what she's doing with the mm. guitar, and very, very, very difficult to replicate. If you were to try to write music like Joni Mitchell, because you just have to have that intuitive idea of what it is that you're trying to get across. I don't know if she does have um, what is it called synesthesia, yeah, um, where you where you associate uh, different chords and musical sounds with um with colors or or visual images, but. I f- I I tend to find listening to her music that it it's it's very evocative in terms of its visuals and not not just in her lyrics I think in her in in her kind of compositions around the guitar as well and then later on in her in her jazz period um so yeah I don't know if she has synesthesia but I wouldn't be surprised if she did kind of thing um but yeah i'll i'll chat a bit about about like some albums and some eras in terms of Joni um because the the Joni Mitchell that you might be most um familiar with um would probably be the the folk uh, Joni but we'll see that there's a few different versions of her and i feel like you're going to like 80s Joni we're not there yet <laughs> I don't like I automatically just,
0: everything 80s but you
1: know I uh, no, but I I think you're gonna like 80s <laughs> Joni I just do um I've not heard any not 80s that's good um oh get hype <laughs> but anyway back to 1969 Joni released um Clouds which won her a Grammy um and that album contained both sides now and Chelsea Morning um both songs which had actually been released by other artists before she did it. But this time she she released them in, in her, own, her own style. And it is one of her best albums and one of my favorite of her albums uh, as well. So we entered the 70s then. That's her second album that was. Clouds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the one with the flower, not with the yeah. wine glass, as I right. as I <laughs> <laughs> mentioned during one of the tracks. <laughs> um so, yeah, in, in the early 70s, we start to see Joni experimenting a little bit. Um, her style started to evolve. There was a bit more percussion. There were some backing vocals. There were some overdubs um, on the first two records that she released in, in the 1970s. I, I think when you think about 70s Joni, I think the song Woodstock, which was released in 1970, is a really interesting case study for her impact on the counterculture um so there was three different versions of this song released in one year released in 1970 one by Crosby Stills Nash and Young uh one by the British band Matthew Southern Comfort and Joni's version of of Woodstock and surprisingly I think uh Joni wasn't at Woodstock um, she was supposed to go, she was supposed to perform, but while she was at the airport the day before, um, it was decided by her management or her, her label or whoever it was that she, they wouldn't be able to get her in and out on time um, because the logistics of Woodstock wasn't you know hmm. grab a bus down and, <laughs> and, we'll, and, and there'll be trains running you know w- w- Woodstock was a kind of a very crazy event and she had to be on tv the next day um so they were afraid that they wouldn't get her back out to fulfill this kind of television um uh show that she she, she had to go and you know be interviewed and perform on but the funny thing was that Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young did go to Woodstock and the next day they also appeared on that show uh, because they had a helicopter that brought them in and out and I know I know and um, (laughs) so they they I she she said in an interview that they crashed the show I don't know like if it's true that they just kind of showed up and they were like oh let's get the guys in here or what but but they were on the show with her and you know they were being asked about what was it like at Woodstock and you know this huge countercultural event what was it like and you know they were talking about the mud and the feeling and just this sense of everybody uh, you know the togetherness mm. of it and Joni said it it broke her heart to to not have been there she was absolutely devastated and you know I've 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 watched that clip and she's listening to them talking and you can just see in her that she's completely devastated to have not been a, a, involved in it. She said there's a, a quote from from later on looking back on it when she said it was the biggest event of my generation and I was so close to being part of it. But instead she watched it on TV from her apartment in New York um, and she wrote the song Woodstock, um, which we can take a listen to now. I came
2: upon a child of God He was walking along the road
1: Uh, I, I, like I think it's so interesting that uh, y- you know that, that that song has become such a such a part of how we understand Woodstock right mm. as this kind yeah. of countercultural um or as, as showing the counterculture as being more of a spiritual and peaceful kind of movement uh, than what it would have been portrayed as you know um beforehand and I think it's so interesting that even though she wasn't at Woodstock, her contribution to how we understand it is so important because like that's Joni, you know, she's she she kind of she stands outside of what is happening and she's able to view it and consider it and then, you know, put it through the Lens of her music and explain it back to people, not through you know this is what happened and I saw it because I was there, but through just a mood, through a sense of what the mood is like, and I think that that's just as important as you know watching bands performing at Woodstock or seeing the the fashion or uh, uh, all of the different elements that kind of add up that made that made Woodstock what it was. and i think that's so interesting that that she um that she wasn't there but she wrote probably the most important song about it <laughs> you know
0: <laughs> she tapped into the mood anyway
1: yeah definitely and that's kind of what she does best i think um but then in 1971 came blue um which is i think her probably her most beloved i don't know where it stands in terms of sales i think she had other albums that did better commercially than Blue but it um, It's the
0: one that everyone, it's a shorthand for this is where you start for a lot of people isn't
1: it? It's definitely where you start, it's where I started um, when I started buying Joni Mitchell albums um, on CD back when I was you know about 17 or something and yeah it's the album that I reckon most people would would be the most familiar with, it tops or, or it gets close to topping all the kind of Greatest Albums of All Time. I, I've seen it on lists that are like, you know, albums that represent a, a, a pinnacle turning point in in cultural history or in social history. And um, it was written and produced entirely by her. Um, she produced her own music um, for the majority of her career. And it was also written after her breakup with Graham Nash. Yeah. Mm. Um, and during her relationship with James Taylor. Um he during too, her, he? her relationship with James Taylor that that do, do you ever see online or like in articles or whatever about musicians and it's like the pair began an intense relationship and yeah. I never really know what that means I'm like what is that is that code for something or is it just- It just sounds like codependency <laughs> to me <laughs> it does to me as well and I don't I don't know if that was the case I don't know very much about her relationship with Dave I don't know very much about any of her relationships to be honest I think everything I need to know is kind of in her music but I always find it funny when I see like the pair began an intense relationship Like ooh, it's real VH1 behind
0: the music shit. It
1: is, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it's like gossip column kind of stuff. Um, They rekindled an old love, an old relationship. Um, But this was also a time when Joni had decided to stop performing live. Um, uh, Was just before she started uh, writing the songs for Blue, and she went off to. Um, <laughs> as I have written here in my notes, the Europe um to travel and write songs and just sort of spend a bit of time She went off to the Europe and she went off to the Europe, um, yeah, she spent some time in Greece and she's kind of traveled around the place uh the way that North Americans do, and they're like, I'll just go to Europe um, and they go everywhere, but um it's europe she's she said about blue um. The Blue Album, there's hardly a dishonest note in the vocals. At that period in my life, I had no personal defences. I felt like a cellophane wrapper on a pack of cigarettes. I felt like I had absolutely no secrets from the world and I couldn't pretend in my life to be strong or to be happy. But the advantage of it in the music was that there were no defences either. And this album is usually the first thing that comes up when you're talking about this album is how open and raw she is about her personal experiences um, this is probably the first time we've heard her really really lean into to that you know there's no there's no great like the, the the metaphors are a lot kind of closer to home you know mm. um you can hear her yearning for home on on california you can hear her you know talking about her breakup but equally talking about falling in love and it's all with this kind of intensely confessional like vulnerable um, voice in terms of in the lyrics but also how how she's performing as well um, my favorite Joni Mitchell song is on this album um, A Case of You um, as well as one of the best Christmas songs of all time River, uh, we won't play River because it's April but we Please can take no. a listen to um, <laughs> <laughs> take a listen to a case of you
0: Absolutely, absolutely we'll do
2: that I am a lonely painter I live in a box of paints I'm frightened by the devil, and I'm drawn to those ones that ain't afraid, I remember that time you told me, you said love is touching souls, surely you touch my anchors. part of you pours out of me, and these lines from time to time.
0: certainly say that in the last 10 or 15 years the James Blake version uh, cover version of that song uh, cast a new light on that song and reminded me obviously Mm. it's a very well-known song but I think he did a a wonderful version of it and it really did uh, remind uh, people how great uh, Johnny Mitchell was at that time
1: yeah I mean I think that song is just one of the best love songs like I could drink a case of you and still be on my feet is just Genius! It's absolutely genius because it speaks to the kind of maybe that's the intense relationship thing, you know, like <laughs> the the excesses that come with like the early days of being in love, where you're just sort of like binging on one another, and it, it can spill over into being, you know, too much, and the intensity can be too much, and you know, there's when one, one the the lines that she delivers in this song is just my favorite thing she's she's ever that she's ever sung is, uh, in the, I think second verse, um, she sings part of you pours out of me in these lines from time to time. And it's just that sense of like, even when she's trying not to write about love or a certain person or whatever, it's, it's that she's the vessel for what is being said and, or, or the conduit rather. Um, she's just, she's she's what the message is passing through and she's just interpreting it and and that it could pour out of her into songs is such a beautiful kind of image but it also kind of decenters her as the as the the person delivering that message you know it's not really coming from her it's coming from some kind of divine space or something i just, i absolutely love those um those lyrics but it's it's a beautiful song and again a nightmare to play in the guitar like it's, <laughs> she's so it's so um deceptive um in how difficult uh it is and she and you know any any women out there who've tried to sing along with a Joni Mitchell song and had the had the ha, had it skip or something, or you know have a turn off and <laughs> when you didn't expect it' we'll know how difficult it is to mm-hmm. kind of sing her songs as well, especially in those early years, especially in the in the sixties and seventies with that that amazing amazing falsetto that she just jumps into you know like she'll be she'll be in the middle of delivering a line in this kind of you know mid register. And something that's so part of her sound is just how she'll jump like, you know, an octave or whatever, just for a couple of notes and then jump back down again. It doesn't seem like it should work, but it works so well because she never really loses the sense of what the melody is. Like The melody might be going absolutely all over the place, but you're still following her. You're still Mm. kind of on that road with her yeah, it's still something on that journey with her you know
0: Done a lot and especially those big songs is really like walk that line very that in few in ways that a few singers have been able to do and hold mm. their own in that while well, it's kind of swirling around whatever the central key mm. is and, and you know it's just kind yeah of, it does its own and thing. it's not
1: showy it's not yeah. it's not in in the way that you know that the great divas would have done it where where you're showing off that you can you know um get Get your voice into all these kind of big twists and turns. It was never really showy but it was always impressive you know. Like California is another great example of uh, of what she does with her voice there like that's one of the most recognizable melodies in folk music and in, in pop music um, and yet if you were to look at it written down you'd be like that's an absolutely mad thing to be doing in, in, in the vocal part of this but it just works because it feels like it's coming from somewhere else within her that, that those kind of those high notes that she reaches for just feel intuitive you know it's yeah. it's uh, it's really amazing um and then Joni had a jazz phase
0: you- um
1: a jazz era um and usually when you hear of greats having a jazz era um it's not the best—it's um, <laughs> not their best work, um, but um, no, and, and I can't say I'm like as familiar with her jazz era as I would be with um, her her earlier stuff. But um, what I do like and what I have listened to uh, d- during this era, I just think is fantastic. But more importantly, jazz lovers um, love this music, um, which is a. <laughs> Like jazz, jazz lovers are hard to. They're they're not the most receptive, um, uh, yeah. kind of fair characterization, I'd say. Yeah, like in in terms of other people kind of coming in and and saying, "Well, I'm doing jazz now," but I think because Joni loved jazz so much as a kid, and also how she experiments with harmonies and chords in her songwriting, I feel like a jazz era was was. Um, was inevitable for her you know because she she's already kind of attuned to strange chords and weird progressions and sorry i'm using words like strange and weird but you know non not traditionally kind yeah, of pop well, sounding things and
0: um, yeah more dissonant maybe or less
1: yeah a bit more dissonant or there. just just a bit you know just using harmonies that you don't hear in pop music um and so towards the mid 70s, she started to perform again. She started performing live again and she started to introduce kind of more jazz, more experimental stuff in, into her sound.
0: So we talk in late 70s now, she did maybe how many albums? So this is of kind of jazz. So
1: this is the mid the 70s at this stage. Uh, let me check what album number she's on. That's a good uh I think this is how we should talk about musicians. We shouldn't talk about what age they are at any given point. We should just talk about what album number they're on. Um, duh, duh, duh. So one, two, three, four. So she's getting ready to make her one, two, three, four, five, her fifth and sixth records, uh, Court and Spark, The Hissing of Summer Lawns uh, in the mid-70s. 75, that's what we're talking Exactly. Um, and so crucially at this stage she is at the peak of her commercial and critical success so she's doing really well you know she's she's being recognized she's her her label are very happy with her because she's making the money she's had a number of radio hits um, most of her albums have been a commercial success. So you can imagine <laughs> working at her label and she comes in and she says, actually, <laughs> you know what I'm going to do now? It's, I'm, I'm going to enter my jazz period. Um, but on on Court and Spark, which was 74? 74, um, she began, She had, it, that was actually much more of a kind of a pop sounding record with kind of jazz elements, but she ended the record um, with the Annie Ross jazz classic, uh, Twisted. And take a listen to this and just hear how natural she sounds in this environment, how well her voice suits it. And we're starting to get a sense of that kind of big change in, in her vocal style here as well. I didn't
2: listen to his child.
1: I knew all along that he was
2: all wrong and I knew that he thought i was crazy but i'm not oh, no, no. my analyst told me that i was right out of my head he said i need treatment but i'm not that easily led he said i was the type that was most inclined went out of his sight to be out of my mind and he thought i was nuts no more if or buts say, as a child, I appeared a little bit wild with all my crazy ideas, but I knew what was happening, I knew I was a genius. What's so strange when you know that you're a wizard
0: at three? I- oh, We're going straight into jazz territory there. Straight into what? Yeah. Jazz was defined as pre the new jazz era and very Absolutely.
1: much of that time um, and doesn't she sound so at home there yeah like well, doesn't it just she's got sound a like a strong like
0: voice to match mm. that kind of instrumentation as well
1: absolutely yeah and uh, and she'd go on to kind of keep elements of jazz instrumentation throughout basically the right re- the, the rest of her career i think she really found a home in jazz and like i said she was really accepted by uh jazz critics jazz fans and by jazz musicians as well um and so in, in nineteen seventy-seven, um she made a a, a kind of a, a follow-up uh, called uh Don Don Juan. I I can never you know when it's written down and you're like Don Juan, uh Don Juan's reckless daughter. <laughs> <laughs> um which was eight, do you know what i mean yeah, <laughs> just yeah. words like that where you're done like, one you I just know.
0: you just you just you just lost the confidence there for a second one.
1: i did i know i i really tried to make a run on it and then it just it just didn't happen for me um but so she had she had a few experimental tracks on, on on uh on that uh double lp um one of them uh was paprika plains um which was a 16 minute long um orchestral recording that had a piano part. That was improvised by Joni. Um, Do we have a clip of Paprika Pains?
2: In the washroom, women track the rain up to the makeup mirror. Liquid soap and grass. Gotta get some
1: in. So that track and Joni's improvisation um, caught the ear of one Charles Mingus. Um, he's obviously one of the best jazz composers and uh, improvisers in h- history, um, incredibly influential man. Um, and he called her up. Um, she said he was basically on his deathbed and he wanted to work with her on his last ever work that he that he was going to do um, and that would become her 1979 album uh, Mingus he was battling ALS and he uh, reached out to her and the original concept for their collaboration um this is a quote I have centered around setting T.S. Eliot's four quartets to music but Mitchell found it a less than inspiring idea to execute instead Mingus uh, now uh, using a wheelchair, gave Mitchell some melodies he'd written by humming them into a tape recorder. He also asked her to set his ode to Lester Young, goodbye pork pie hat, to words as well. And, you know, goodbye pork pie hat is an incredibly, um, Famous jazz uh, song, and you know the idea of Mingus coming to you with it and saying, you know, could you write some words for this is um, is absolutely terrifying. Interestingly, actually, um, Joni Mitchell had worn blackface on the cover of one of her albums, and really, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, w- and when he reached out to her, he cited it and said that it was the audacity of her doing it that kind of as uh, as well as what he heard in her music that caused him to reach out which i think is very indicative of a of a, a of a different time but also i don't think that would have been very common at the time either her the the, the blackface on, on on the cover of that album is obviously not yeah. okay but wow but i didn't i
0: didn't even cop it when i was looking at it of course oh i know yeah sure.
1: yeah okay yeah. yeah um but it was part of the reason why he reached out to her and hey that's just that's part of its history, um, I guess. But her her management begged her not to do the album. They said, this is not going to go down with pop fans. It's not going to go down well with jazz fans. There's going to be no kind of audience uh, for this. But uh, Joni didn't care. And she felt, she kind of approached it as, you know, one of my heroes has reached out to me to work for me. This is my opportunity to to learn, to learn about jazz she talked about having you know dipped a toe in but working with Mingus um was like being being pushed in at the deep end you know and um and the the, the result is is fantastic I I love uh I love Mingus I, I, as in the the album uh Mingus and I think you can really hear how great she is in terms of like interpreting other people's music on this as well. Um, here's a snippet of um, Joni Mitchell and Charles Mingus's Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, which I think is just great. Oh, someone
2: great has gone. The sweetest swinging music man Had a porky pig hat on A bright star In a dark. Evening when the bandstands had a thousand ways of refusing a black man
0: Okay, that was a goodbye, Park Pat, Park Pie Hat by Johnny Mitchell and Charles Mingus.
1: Yeah, um, so he died while the album was being made, actually. So um, some of the compositions had to be finished by by Joni, and it was released then in uh, nineteen seventy nine. I guess at 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 the end of her official jazz period, um, because in the eighties. Oh my! Um, she, she Joni embraced the eighties, um, and I think she made some uh, very cool choices that I just y- you don't necessarily, like. I I didn't listen to Joni's eighties stuff for years. Um, and then when I finally kind of delved in, I was like, this is just mad. Like it's I I, I think it's great. So she released three albums in the 80s. Um, Wild Things Run Fast in 82, Dog Eat Dog in 85 and Chalk Mark in a Rainstorm in 88. And you can really hear now that her voice is starting to change it's starting to get a lot lower her soprano is lilting, and she opts for this much deeper tone in her in, in her vocals she starts working with Thomas Dolby, Willie Nelson and Peter Gabriel so she had like um duets um and this period is often overlooked in her career but I think it produced some some really interesting kind of more experimental for Joni songs uh, that sound very, very 80s. Um, so I've selected two. Um, <laughs> the first is "Good Friends now some
2: downtown in the dance halls and the galleries.
0: I mean, got Michael McDonald as well. Jesus Christ. Yeah, <laughs> what an I 80s mean, video as well. My God.
1: <laughs> yeah, the video is is like... Um, it's
0: like that kind uh, b- of... Uh, b- both
1: a, a Paul Simon video and a Michael Jackson video. Uh, I think the Michael Jackson video is the way you make me feel. Um, it's that sort of stop motion kind of vibe. So, Nile, when I told you that, that Joni Mitchell really leaned into the 80s vibe, were you expecting...
0: No, I didn't think you literally would literally meant like it sounded like a would Mac big love song, do you know, like Right? Didn't think it would be quite the same as that. But um, yeah, it is. Uh, <laughs> that one is anyway.
1: Yeah, I think Good Friends was the first one I listened to from this period. And I was like, I really like this, actually. <laughs> um, and another selection I have from this decade in Joni's career is uh, a duet with Peter Gabriel. And it's called My Secret Place.
0: Speaking my language here. So that was from uh, oh, Doggy yeah. Dog 1985. And this one mm-hmm. is from. 1988 chalk mark in a rainstorm let's hear this, this chalk place, mark Secret in a rainstorm
1: place. great album cover too she looks cool as shit your special case for my special place
2: my special place. Talk
0: to tell you something to take space. I'm uh, Yeah, very good. Very nice. Does sound a bit like Peter a Gable. Peter Gable song.
1: Yes. Um, yeah, those are just two examples of her 80s period I think it's it's well worth kind of looking at if you are a Johnny Mitchell fan and haven't you know delved into those to those three albums I think it was I think it was an interesting period for her and I think she did very well I mean not many um you can't imagine really any other artist who managed to get through the 80s um who like came up in the late 60s and 70s um unscathed or without embarrassment, but she managed to do it. Um and she also had some great cuts from the 90s as well. Um things get a little bit lighter on the synth front. Um, <laughs> as you would expect. As you would expect. Um everybody is bored of the synthesizers now after an entire decade of it, which is absolutely fair enough. Um, so she released an album called turbulent indigo in 1994 and there's two songs that i love of hers um, from this record um, the first is called sex kills and i think we've got a clip of that i took a look
2: at his license plate it said just it's justice Just the strong doing what they can And the weak suffering what they must Pour in the caskets And the oil spills And sex sells everything
0: It is interesting how artists can take on the um, zeitgeist of the time and, and take in some of those influences. And and mm. I wonder, like, in terms of that album now, was there a particular producer or anybody who, like, helped
1: um, kind
0: of shape that sound? It's It kind of sounds a lot... It's very of the time, isn't it?
1: It is very of the time. And, and this is when we start to see Joni, I guess... Well, not start to see, but um, in her... In her protest music, which she, you know, ha- had been doing since the sixties, um, it's a lot more direct here. I mean, the lyrics here are very direct. Um, you know, the gas leaks, the oil spills, sex sells everything, sex kills. Uh, there's also, you know, lines about you know, there's a rapist in the pool. There's tragedies in nurseries, little kids packing guns to school. Like it's a very, very, very dark song, and it has all of this imagery that we don't usually associate with joni mitchell you know um it's a it's very, very direct um but I think it's a it's a cool song to note um because I think music of this kind in the nineties was like that um you know, and the other song from this album that um Irish people will probably be familiar with um is. Uh, the Magdalene Laundries.
0: that belly from her from her bridget got that belly by her parish priest so she was very much ahead of the of of most people in terms of talking about this this is
1: i mean certainly internationally um and she obviously had her own experience of being a an unmarried young uh young mother as well um so when she when she heard about this she said the magdalen laundry song came about because i read that the sisters of our lady of charity in dublin had sold off land which led to the discovery of graves marked Magdalene of the sorrows or magdalen of the tears but didn't have the names of these women and i could identify with that because when i was pregnant and looking for an institution to hide away in i went to places like the like the salvation army and i was refused um so i think it's it's so interesting that um, like it's, it, it's an incredibly powerful song, Magdalene Laundrie's. And like I said, her interest in, in in the topic is unsurprising because of, you know, her early life. But this kind of late career exploration of that is very interesting. You know, she, it, I, I think it's, it's a perfect rendition of the atrocities, um, that happened in Ireland, but it's also her looking at, uh, uh a, a tragedy or a or a difficult period in her life, on a with a more kind of global lens, or you know she's not she's not speaking for anybody here. She knows that this is a very different situation. That Ireland is a, a Catholic country and or what was a Catholic country at the time. Um, and I think she really tried to get a sense of. Like she, she tried to really learn about it before she wrote a song about it. You know, Um, even the way, just words like "branded as a Jezebel" or, you know, the use of the word uh, of the name Bridget, the parish priest, woe begotten daughters. Like there's a, there's a real sense of her having a having an understanding of of the kinds of words and phrases that we would that we would have used. In Ireland, uh, when talking about these topics, like like surely to God you think at least some bell should ring um, is is an amazing um, line. And the, the surely to God in it just it just has that Irish sort of dialect to it. And you really get the sense that may, maybe she spoke to people or I, I, I don't know what it was that gave her the ability to kind of sum this up as a Canadian woman so well and so timely as well you know like the song came out in 1994 no no sorry 1994 yeah um, I don't think so 1994 yeah um and then she led it just the to say I mean
0: with the Chieftains in 1999 which is the the only version it, yeah. it's up on Spotify because obviously Johnny Mitchell took all her music off Spotify um, yes, but the chieftains have not. Yeah.
1: Um, but um, yeah, and just to say, I mean, like the last Magdalene Laundry closed in Ireland in 1996. So, um, two, two years before the last laundry closed, she, she, she wrote this song. And yeah, that goes to show the timeliness of it. She's not singing about this, trying to kind of put herself into some, you know, historic event or it, it, it was very, very current at the time. And this hit a uh, a nerve um or it hit you know irish people um a lot because it's it, it it's a wonderful and very i think respectful um rendition of of what exactly happened there um and yeah two years later the last one shut down so good woman joni i mean it it's it, you know she she was still the counterculture you know like Mm. she's this is the 1990s she started a career in the 1960s all these decades later all of this career and like she she never seemed to run out of steam when it came to putting putting things to write in her music you know she never seemed to get tired and another she doesn't seem uh, like the kind
0: of artist that was like uh putting her songs on on super bowl ads you know what i mean
1: Totally, yeah, yeah, and I mean, so uh, another big thing that happened with with Joni in the '90s, which is a really, really lovely thing, um, was that in 1998 she was reunited with her daughter, um, and the song "Stay in Touch" um, she wrote about that, um, and it is just absolutely heartbreaking. When they were reunited, they, I, I, I think she said that they just they just fell in love and she felt like she was home and she couldn't believe like she was absolutely overjoyed at being reunited with her daughter and her daughter was overjoyed to be to be re- reunited with her as well so um yeah so this is a bit of uh, stay in touch
2: this is really something people will be envious but our roads aren't clear so we mustn't rush still we're burning brightly clinging like fire to fuel i'm grinning like a fool stay in touch
1: we should stay in touch so i mean like the lyrics in that are just so moving when you think of this life that she's been through you know like her her musical career is is kind of bookended actually with her separation from her daughter and they're reuniting, you know, there's, there's such beautiful lyrics in this, our, our roles aren't clear, so we mustn't rush. Still, we're burning brightly, clinging like fire to fuel. I'm grinning like a fool. And there's pictures of them together. And she really is like, she's just got this massive smile on her face. She's so happy. And you just think of everything she's been through in, in her life and how attuned she is to the kind of emotional aspects of these things of relationships and how people become separated and oh it's just oh it actually like that song I, I don't listen to that song very often because it just gives me it makes me really really emotional to think about it but um it's such a it's it's such a beautiful thing to to it, it, it's a beautiful record of of that time in her life and it's like she keeps nothing private you know like it's everything it's like she works out everything in music and she's okay with just releasing it and having people hearing it. These intensely personal relationships, these personal experiences of hers—they're all there. But just because you know we, somebody mightn't have gone through that, she she just invites you in so easily with her lyrics. She's so warm and so inviting that you can just step into what her perspective was in that moment, and then just cry for a day you know it's um yeah so that, that that was 1998 and that this kind of brings us to her final albums actually um which were recorded to fill contractual uh, obligations so they they did um use either a lot of um cover songs or um previously recorded songs from her earlier in in her career and um both sides now is uh, the most famous of these um, of these albums uh was released in 2000 it's largely um, covers of jazz standards but I think the jewel of this record is the, the second rendition of the song Both Sides Now um, you can hear the transformation in her voice in her delivery I mean the instrumentation like when you listen to this compared to listening to the song you know earlier in, in, in her career in the 60s it's it, it's so transportive and amazing yeah let's let's take a little listen to the the 2000 uh, yeah. both sides now.
2: as every fairy tale comes from I've looked at love that we But now it's just another show And you leave them laughing when you go And if you can, don't let me know Don't give yourself away I've looked at love from both sides now Given to still somehow it's
0: illusions
2: that I recall
0: That's a bit much now, Andrea. <laughs> like you you I feel know. that now.
1: <laughs> doesn't it like it, it it's so amazing to hear it, you know, with these decades of experience behind her. And it doesn't like it doesn't take away from the earlier recorded version of it, because at that time she had also been through a lot in life. But singing those same words, you know, with this breadth of experience that she's that that she's gone through over over all these decades, this career, you know, ha- having lost her daughter and and kind of regained her relationship with her daughter, the marriages she's been through, you know, ev- everything you can f- feel at the weight of her entire life in every word that she sings there and it's I'm I'm like so grateful that both versions of that song exist because the song was always about looking at things through a new lens and a new perspective and the, the perspective of experience and a life lived and her returning to that at, at this time in her life, when things are changing. And like, like I said, you know, she's, she's um getting to know her daughter again. She's winding down her music career. She's bookending it with by, by returning to this song that that was so important to her and was a salve for her, um, early on and was the song that gave her the co- I, I i think anyway because it was one of the first songs that she wrote it, it very well could have been the song that gave her the confidence to you know actually pursue um leaving her first husband and trying to make it on her own and then just l- looking back in that way um and I will defend its use in love actually until the day I die I think that scene is <laughs> <laughs> that's the scene where um Emma Thompson realizes that um she's being cheated on and I think it's just one of the most wonderful uses of music in, in film. I think at that moment is a masterpiece. Even we'll if you hate that film. <laughs> yeah. E- even if you hate that film, e- like nobody gets through that scene without crying. You know, it's it's unbelievable. But yeah, that that pretty much brings me to the end of my my interpretation of, you know, Joni yeah. and what what I love about her. And I think you know, she said later in life that, you know, she never wanted to be a human jukebox. And she never was that. Like, you can't listen to Joni and not feel every word and every lyric. And that doesn't matter what style she's working in, you know, whether it's jazz, whether it's kind of the more 90s stuff, whether it was the 80s, you know, whether it was the 60s. No matter what genre or form she was working in, she was in it 100%. She was very much as like a student of music in that way she always wanted to learn she's always looking over there to see what other people are doing she's just such a creative force like and she always decided what the best avenue was for what it was that she wanted to say or or what mood she wanted to convey or what she wanted to represent in her music and if that the best avenue for that was jazz then she did jazz the best avenue for that was a was a guitar folk song then she did that but it's with Joni. it's 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 so much more than kind of what the notes that are played are or what the lyrics are said are she she just has this ability to like just transport you and move you to somewhere else completely and make you get really introspective actually <laughs> as well. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um have I convinced you to to dive in? Yeah, I think uh,
0: it's just the time, isn't it? Isn't that what it is? I know, I but like I know. really this is a lovely grounding because I think when you when you want a primer for an artist, you need to know where to start sometimes. And yeah. Yeah. It is nice I would
1: start with clouds and blue. Um yeah. I think are are two great places to start. Um, and from there you can kind of decide if you, if you want to, if you want to get into her jazz stuff, basically all of it's great. But if if you want to do the jazz stuff, I'd start with Mingus maybe. Um, but she's a powerhouse. She's absolutely,
0: best. absolutely, and yeah. has done so much, and always kept her authenticity in in all mm-hmm. of that as well. And and funny, like just we were talking about doing this anyway, and it just so happened that um she came up a lot in the past week. She was at the Grammys on Sunday, uh, age of seventy eight. Obviously, people may or may not know she had an aneurysm in two thousand fifteen, and was recover has been recovering since. But uh, presented an award alongside Bonnie Raitt, um, uh at the Grammys and then was also that same weekend she was uh, honored at a ceremony in Vegas as well where people sang her songs obviously the one song we left out here is, is probably the most ubiquitous one and
1: mm-hmm. I think
0: it's like probably is there any particular reason why you left it I can imagine why but I'll let you lead on that one I, like why did I you th- leave I out think Big Yellow Taxi?
1: um i did i didn't kind of purpose i i i I had it in my notes and then i just thought everybody knows big yellow taxi and there's no context i can give big yellow taxi that people don't already know um but that's not to say that i don't think it's one of the best songs ever written it's one of my favorite protest songs um if we were doing a podcast about protest songs absolutely there um but yeah, it's one of those songs that has that has you know stayed so relevant. You know, it's it, it's about the environment and you know social collapse due to that. And she was on the button then; she remains on the button now with it. You know, it's a it's a it's an incredible song, and the the witty way that she goes about it the the turns of phrase, the pave paradise and put up a parking lot. There's no better way to kind of talk about like capitalism or late stage capitalism or whatever stage we're in now there's no better image for that than they took all the trees and put them in the tree museum you know it's it's just it's outstanding like uh, yeah no i i should have included it actually no but no but it's fine it's fine to leave Although it on that because i think, have now <laughs>
0: yeah it's fine to leave it on that as well i think cuz it's like mm. you know it is it's probably her poppiest moment and also like yeah in in no disrespect to I mean, there's no disrespect at all on, on anything that Joni did with, with Big Yellow Taxi, but it did, it was kind of ruined for me by Captain Crows. And that's not her oh, fault God, because they no, ruined not. it <laughs> for me. So I can't, I just don't, I wouldn't go near the song mostly because of that, because I had to listen to that so many times in the, yeah. was it in the 90s? When was it? I don't know. Anyway, yeah, it was it was yeah. annoying. I also
1: didn't play California for a similar reason because I think it's it's popular enough that people know California. Um but mm. again, one of her best songs. Absolutely no, no denying it. Yeah.
0: Okay, well look, that's I think it's just worth mentioning that song because it is the final one. Obviously of course no. sampled uh, I love talking about samples and That was sampled in you Janet do. Jackson's <laughs> Got Till It's Gone uh, from nineteen ninety-seven a uh, uh, lovely use of that as well um mm. and that's it that's it from Joni Mitchell I think that's, that's a Joni. great I mean primer. I'm sorry
1: if I left anything out that people are like screaming at their podcast provider of choice at the moment hopefully it's not Spotify out of respect for Joni um <laughs> but yeah sorry if I did leave anything out but this was just just my take on how if, if Niall and I were in a pub how would I convince him to listen to Joni Mitchell, I think this I is already
0: had I a sympathetic ear, so yes, so that's exactly, good, yeah, so that's good. Yeah, but that's yeah. a, that's a lovely so overview, anything, and I like. Um, I think the cultural context stuff is kind of you know it's really important as well because it's like that's what gets your hooks into an artist as well, like knowing what yeah why it was important and why you know ever, other than actually hearing the songs and going oh these are great songs but like it's it's great to yeah. also hear the and the
1: and background. like some something i didn't talk much about was kind of her role in the counterculture um of the 60s but again that's something i think people understand whereas they mightn't yeah might necessarily have, have known about you know uh, how her relationships or her daughter might have m- might have impacted her her songwriting. So, yeah, go forth and listen to Joni, everyone. Um, Nile, have you got any other business this week? Any other things that you've been liking?
0: Um, any other things I've been liking this TV, week? TV
1: film anything?
0: Um, I've been enjoying Severance. Did I saw it, said it last week. I'm not sure if I, oh, said I don't it think week. so. Um, it's an Apple TV show starring Adam Scott also mm-hmm. of uh are you talking you two to me oh <laughs> <Yeah>. yes <laughs> very good uh is uh it's really interesting yeah um i'm not really sure i just like the vibe of it i'm not really sure what's happening but uh it involves the plot in a basic level because you find out this in, in episode one it's uh uh, anyone that works in this building has a severance, uh, and a severance is in the package. It's a uh, a split between your work life and your home life, and your work life mm. and your home life know nothing of each other. So, <laughs> something oh. about sensitive, a sensitive work area, and uh, it's an exploration of that and what it means to be two different, a split personality essentially. So, um,
1: cool, being that aware awesome. of it.
0: So, I'm really enjoying that at the moment. Yeah, it's. it's uh, I saw something yesterday that called it. Uh, Apple TV's first great show um, okay. I don't know if that's true Because I only just had Apple TV very recently So I haven't really watched much of it mm. um, But I'm, I'm really enjoying that That's for sure um,
1: Cool uh, My recommendation this week um, Is Our Flag Means Death Which is uh, Reese Darby and Taika Waititi's uh, Gay pirate romantic comedy series That is just My favourite thing right now. I like it. My fucking feelings, Niall. Jesus Christ, these gay pirates, they're going to be the death of me. It's very, very funny. It's if you like what we do in the shadows, um, you'll love this. And it's, you know, I, I don't want to be like, oh, it's got great representation because it's more than that. Right. It's it's like they, they had they they've a non-binary character played by a non-binary actor. They have three non-binary writers in the room. You know, basically all the pirates are gay. It's 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 just great. And the central love story is so beautiful. It doesn't queer bait you at all. Um, like a lot of other media does, where you get like one gay character and maybe they kiss, but they probably won't. This is like full on hilarious but but also happens to have brilliant representation in it as well. I it's 10 30 minute episodes. You'll absolutely fly through it. Um and it is a bomb for the soul. Uh, like and so so funny. And Tycho it so basically it's it, it's about this um this pirate who was a real pirate um who was a landowning aristocrat back in the golden age of piracy and he decided to leave his wife and children and become a pirate so he had a boat built and went out got got a crew went out set sail to become a pirate but he was notoriously just bad at being a pirate and was always getting captured and raided and like was awful at it but for a while like and this is all real for a while he sailed with like blackbeard who was you know the the, the greatest pirate of all time and terrifying and blah blah, blah. But the two of them just like were mates for a bit, I guess. So it's it's an adaptation of of their relationship with one another. And taiko Matiti plays Blackbeard, uh, Reese Darby plays the um the the gentleman pirate, as he was known. And it's just brilliant. It's really, really great. If you're if you're sad at all this week, just great. throw we want, it on. One yeah. to
0: add to the list for me. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um,
1: it's on HBO. Yeah. So go to your official (laughs) hbo.com and watch it there (laughs) (laughs) i i wouldn't be one to encourage piracy um in that this would, instance oh thank you army hearties very, very good <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's my main recommendation this week i'm not even going to recommend anything else because i want people to watch this so much and then talk good. to me about it on twitter because okay. nobody's watched it and i, need, and I a lot Yeah, of i
0: actually hadn't heard because even last night i was looking up um new shows to watch uh and did not see anything about that Um,
1: Oh, it's 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 really great. Yeah, it didn't really get marketed very much. But now that people have seen it and they see how good it is, like there's a bloodthirsty um, fandom now, like a proper, proper fandom um, who are going crazy for season two, like and I'm one of them. I returned to Tumblr to reblog gift sets. Like this is, it's big. <laughs> <laughs> you have not. <laughs> oh, I have. Yes. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm we... a 31 year old woman with a secret Tumblr, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. <laughs> Reactivated. We've
0: been me we've been animated. Very good. Uh, okay, well, I think we'll leave it there for this week. Um, yep. Thank you, Andrea. And uh, I forgot to thank mention earlier on Patreon.com slash nine for all your. Um, if you want to throw us the point of a point price of a pint, if you want to throw us the pint <laughs> if you want to throw You want to throw a
1: pint at
0: us. want to throw a pint us. Do it
1: with money. Virtually. Don't do it if you see us. With cash,
0: in, in not in person, <laughs> but on the internet, yeah. please, patreon.com. Where uh, this week I put up a post punk new wave playlist, uh a Ooh, collection of music. I, I can missed to that this week. I think you're on the emails you um, should be anyway so let me know if you're not um, yeah. and obviously the Discord as well so Discord uh, is where Great buzz. We'll, we'll do a lot of we we'll have a lot of water cooler moments about what's been happening in music and uh, yeah so yeah I'm going to be in
1: there in, in the TV section forcing everybody to watch my gay pirate show so. <laughs> so you all everyone in the Discord you have that to look forward to <laughs> <laughs> they
0: pay Paradise and put up a pirate show and that's where we <laughs> oh leave oh my it.
1: god that's amazing.
0: <laughs> okay. On that note, bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, you're in my blood like holy wine. And you taste so bitter. And you taste so sweet. I could drink a kiss of you. I could drink a kiss of you. Down. I'd be on my feet, I'd still be on my feet.